All right, welcome everyone to the second episode of the Monaco Moments podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, in today's episode, my guest is no one other than Paul Akers. Now, Paul Akers is an amazing guy. Most people probably know him uh, from being the founder and president of FastCap, which is a company that now has thousands of distributors worldwide in more than 40 countries. You may also know him from his awesome videos that he does about lean manufacturing on YouTube. Just type in fast cap lean and you'll find all of them. Um, but Paul is just an impressive guy in general. Uh, he won business of the year in 1999 and 2010. In June 2011, Paul also won the Seattle Business Magazine's prestigious business executive of the year award. Uh, but in general, he's just an amazing guy, you know, like he's a great storyteller, as you'll see in this conversation. He's uh, a very serious athlete. He wrote several really good books and he's also incredibly generous. So in today's episode, we're going to talk, of course, about lean manufacturing. We talk about generosity. We talk about empathy. We talk our fair share about uh, sports, reading, learning, and just in general, interesting life lessons. So without further ado, I bring you my conversation with Paul Akers. Welcome everyone to the second episode of the James Monocle Show. And today my guest is no one other than Paul Akers. Paul, welcome to the show. Thanks, Yap. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's a pleasure. So um, I'd be surprised, but I'm, I'm sure there's some people that don't know who you are. Can you give us maybe a little a little intro? Yeah, uh, I'll do that. But I always start by saying I'm a carpenter. I grew up in Southern California down in San Diego. And I, my passion was woodworking. I got into that. I got my degree in education, taught industrial arts, uh, was a general contractor, uh, built homes and furniture. Developed one simple product called the Fast Cap. That product took off. It's a peel and stick cover cap to cover screw holes and cabinets. And today we have about 800 products and we're in 40 countries, thousands of distributors worldwide. After about three years of starting that company from in my garage at the home that I'm in right now, we started it right here. I learned about lean manufacturing of the Toyota production system kind of serendipitously, you know, some guys walked into my shop and they looked around and told me I didn't know what I was doing, even though I was making a lot of money and doing very successful. And I was curious, instead of being defensive when they told me I didn't know what I was doing, because I was a very successful person at that point, I said, well, what do I need to do? And they said, I need to learn the Toyota production system. They came into my facility. They took processes that were taking me 45 minutes and in a week or two took them to five minutes. Yeah, so the efficiency wow. went through the ceiling. Um, the uh, I, lean is not about money, but the profitability went through the ceiling. Uh, everything got better dramatically. I got on a plane, went to Japan, saw what the Japanese were doing, saw what Toyota was doing, saw what Lexus was doing, realized there was a massive gap between what I thought was good manufacturing and what real manufacturing was. And I was at the bottom of that gap and Toyota was at the top. So I set out to make my life's work about developing and building a lean culture. And that is where we are today. We're talking about that, I think, probably more yeah. than anything else. Yeah, we're I'm also going to ask you some uh, maybe more personal uh, questions sure. for sure. But um, yeah. so maybe just for 
uh, I mean, I think a lot of the people that are listening are maybe not so much into manufacturing, so they may not know what lean manufacturing is. Can mm -hmm. you maybe give a short version of what that would be? It is the easiest and simplest thing in the world to understand. Everything you do in life is a process. How you brush your teeth, how you put on your hat, how you connect your AirPods, how you get your car keys, how you mow your lawn, how you make your lunch, how you answer communications, how you uh, get information to give to other people. Every one of those are individual processes. From the starting point to the ending point of that process, there are there is waste. There are inefficiencies. There is clunkiness in the way that process is performed. All lean does and all a lean thinker does is they look at the starting point and the ending point and they say, how can I improve that or eliminate the waste? That is it. No more to it than that. Did that help you? Is that, is that, that what that you... That helps me, yeah. So, so maybe some... Was, that, uh, was it simple? Was it, I'm curious, was that a simple enough answer or was it too difficult to get... No, that was a simple it? enough answer, definitely. Okay. And I'm always curious. Uh, maybe some backgrounds. Like I've, I've been looking into Lean for a little over a year now for myself. <laughs> I, did a, <laughs> I did a course in Lean Six Sigma at the University of Amsterdam. Uh, right. But the way I actually got hooked on it, which I thought would maybe be interesting to share, is uh, it, it kind of happened while looking at camper vans. So okay. uh, I love the idea of camping and surfing. And I would see all these people who would travel the world with these camper vans. And right. they would make the small space so incredibly efficient. And then, you know, where I work as a factory, so it rolled over and I was starting to look into it. And then I saw some of your videos and then it just... Mm -hmm. You know, started coming. You have more. you have lean eyes. That's you're you're thinking, one hundred percent correctly. Yeah. Uh, so I think something uh, interesting to mention for everyone is that I emailed you twenty four hours ago, and now right. twenty four hours later, we're already uh, sitting here. So I think that says quite a thing about uh, your generosity, and also you know, like I have your app. You give out all these books for free. Um, is this something you have always done or is this something that you have started doing later or developed? Well, there's two part question. Do uh, you mean the giving away of things? Just the general generosity. I mean, you're giving yeah. us your time now, but also you give away your books and your, what your learnings in general. Well, first of all, my father set a phenomenal example of generosity. My father would do anything for anybody. And he never expected anything in return. So that was modeled to me for sure. But as I became a better and better student of history and understood how the world worked, mm -hmm. how great leaders were successful, and really when I studied great societies, I realized that at the backbone of every great individual and great society was the spirit of generosity. And so, as I understood this philosophically, I made it the hallmark of who I am. Yeah, that's amazing. That's amazing. Uh, I definitely want to model some of that myself. I'm uh, 23 now, so I still have a, a long time to go. But um, It produces the greatest joy and satisfaction in life to help another human being. There is no higher calling. There's nothing that will make you feel better. There's nothing that will that will impart sustainability 
in your life and in your community better than the spirit of generosity. So you do a lot with uh, giving away knowledge or is, is that how it started for you to generosity? Well, card, every, I give away everything. We, we donate millions of dollars to companies, organizations around the world every year. We just, if, pe if people need something and they sincerely need something, they're not just trying to milk the system, which very few people do, to be honest with you. There are people yeah. out there to do it, but we rarely ever say no to anybody. We may push back once or twice just to test the real need. But in general, we, we, we're, we're very generous. We, we try to be very generous with everyone. We're, we're, well, first of all, you have to go, you have to make the next step. Where does generosity come from? And this is very important for your listeners. And just as you develop your philosophy about it, generosity comes from an attitude of gratitude. Yeah. So if you, it's easy to be generous when you're a grateful person. So for me, I'm incredibly grateful for everything that's been given to me in my life. I'm grateful I, I'm an American. I'm grateful I was born in a great country. I'm grateful that my founding father sacrificed so we could have this amazing republic. I'm grateful for my European friends. I'm grateful for the exposure I've had to European culture. I'm grateful for uh, everything that so many people throughout the course of history have provided so I could have this uh, amazing life. I'm, I'm grateful for Bach. I'm grateful for Beethoven. I'm grateful for Van Gogh. I'm grateful for Vermeer. I'm grateful. What, what, what fabulous, what a fabulous tapestry mm. that I get to experience on all levels. I'm just grateful. You do seem also like an incredibly happy person. Like when you watch your videos, I personally get that little happy uh, feeling mm -hmm. inside. Do you think it stems mostly from being grateful? Oh, absolutely. No, I feel grateful. I mean, I, it doesn't matter how successful I am. I never sit back and think to myself, damn, Paul, you're good. I'm like, I'm lucky. That's I, I love it that you say that because one of the things that I find interesting is in your book, you talk about uh, Jim Collins' book as well, uh, Good to Great. And, mm -hmm. you know, the level five leadership, he talks about uh, kind of that humility um, mm -hmm. that's in it as right. well. And you seem to have a lot of humility. But at the beginning of the book, you also said, uh, you know, I was used to just being successful in everything that I did. And, and you still are. Mm -hmm. um, where are you? Oh, did you always have that, that humility or is that something that kind of... Oh, no. Oh, no, 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 no. Most people, you know, our, na our nature, if you look at the nature of man, we're very selfish. <laughs> we can be very about ourselves. Uh, we're always protecting our ego. And I did plenty of that in my lifetime, but I recognize it's a very ugly place to be. Hmm. It's a very frustrating place to be. Whenever I was always trying to defend my position or my ego uh, vigorously or make it about me or negotiate the advantage or try to always see what I could extract from the situation, situ situation, I became very frustrated. I didn't feel good about myself. And so I was, I very started, very clearly started to see in my early 20s and delineate what I was doing and what the effect was and saying, you know, how about just saying you're wrong? You made a mistake. I didn't know that your idea is better than mine. Uh, I yeah. thought of that idea first, as opposed to 
yeah, that's a good idea. Wow, I never thought about that. It's I just go, oh, there or here? I said, here, I'm going here. Yeah. And I just started developing my understanding and conducted my life for the most part that way, but I'm not perfect. I just did an interview with Dr. Goldston the other day, a famous wow. author, and he asked me, he asked me a similar question. And he said, what's your biggest struggle, Paul? And I said, not being an asshole. (laughs) (laughs) No way. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the reality of it. Absolutely. Could you expand on that? Why, why is that? uh... Because we, we all think we're pretty self-important and we all think that uh, we're the smartest people in the, in the block. And, and, you know, you got to tamp that stuff down. And the best way to tamp it down is to have a reality check. Uh, I was talking to a friend last night, and, and he was saying similar type things. Yeah. Uh, we were talking about, you know, world politics, and we were talking about all these things. And, and I said, I have, I'm not a courageous person. There are people in the world, when you think of Winston Churchill, you think of courage. Yeah. Right. Uh, there, there are so many leaders that have courage. I, 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 I won't say what I said to him last night because it's not appropriate for our, our <laughs> podcast. But I said one freckle on my body doesn't have the courage that Winston Churchill had, wow. you know. And so and he said, oh, no, Paul, you're so courageous. You speak out about everything. You're not afraid. You don't care about anything. And I said one freckle on my body doesn't have the courage that Winston Churchill had. Yeah, it's just, yeah. So you have to keep it in perspective. And, and you a, do that by reading. I read a ton. I read a book a week minimum. My my yeah. reading list is massive. And I read a lot about history. Just finished a book about Harry Truman yeah. and uh, the turn of events right after World War II or right at the culmination of World War II. Mm-hmm. And I just read a book about American history and John Adams, and I can just go on and on and on. I'm constantly reading, and that really gives me a, a wake up call on really my stature, my position in life, which is insignificant. Yeah, that's actually something I was also curious in hearing a bit more about. You read so much. How first of all, how how do you read? Do you actually read? Do you listen to audiobooks? No, audio. Everything's audio. Yeah, okay. everything. Okay. So. I have I've Audible, but you know a cool thing that just happened. Have you heard about my new app? I've used it. That's uh, okay. Good. Yeah. So you know. So you know. You you know. There it is. Right there. Yeah, so all it's my it's a lot books, like Audible, it, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's just like Audible, and it's all free, and and it's just so cool. And so we want to get that in the hands of as many people as possible. And you know, we've got Henry Ford's book on there today and tomorrow. And we have the Toyota yeah. Production System Handbook, and we're just going to keep adding more and more resources. And now we're even adding a Voxer or like a WhatsApp chat on there where people can contact me directly through the app, ask me a question. There'll be a wow. chat feed. So I could have a thousand people on there and people, one person could ask me a question. I could answer it in an wow. audio message. So I'm teaching people how to, I'm not teaching. I'm showing people how to communicate more effectively. I'm modeling that. And there's a lot of cool stuff happening with that app. We're going to do some really big stuff. And it costs a fortune to do all this. But I, can imagine. I, don't, I, I don't care. I, what I care about is improving people's lives. That's all that matters to me. That's amazing. Yeah, uh, for everyone, the link is definitely going to be in uh, the description to download the app. I've used it actually in preparation of this interview partially. Mm-hmm. So uh, how, did you, how did you like it? Uh, honest opinion? I loved it. I loved it. Yeah. I love being able also to put it on, you know, double speed or whatever. So I can right. Me things. too. That's, that's just. I mean, otherwise, I don't. I also try to. I read one book a month or right. book every two weeks. Right. But 
I have right. to put it on double speed, otherwise it doesn't work. Oh, for me, me too. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. So maybe what were your, um, if people are getting into reading, you talk quite a bit about this. I, I understand that you also use it in the business to um, get people to become more of a leader in a sense, right? Like right, you have sure. them read certain books. Um, right. If people are starting to read, what would you advise them to start with? to get into well i would say the the number one book to read you can forget about all other books to be honest with you yeah. even though i could just go on and on and on but i want to be practical yeah. how to win friends and influence people by dale carnegie really okay it is the number one book and the reason why is it tells you how to get along with people it tells yeah. you how to interact with people And I think if you can overcome and be successful in this one thing in life, just your interaction with people, everything else is going to fall into place. You could be a yeah. great historian. You could be a great intellect. You could be a great physicist. You could be a great mathematician. You could be Elon Musk. You could be Steve Jobs. But if you can't effectively negotiate your, your, your daily interactions with people and be successful consistently in the way you do that, You're just going to be beating your head against the wall. So Dale Carnegie's book, emphatically, number one book. Smart. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, I read it myself as well, and I, I loved it too. So uh, I, I see your point. I see your point. Yeah. yeah. I, I utilize Dale Carnegie's uh, concepts every day of my life. Every day of my life. I'm actually reading a, a book right now. I'm rereading a book on negotiation skills from Chris Voss. You may have... Mm -hmm. uh, read it the negotiating negotiating as if your life depended on it oh yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Um, i haven't read that one it's really good but i feel like a lot of the things like a lot of those topics keep coming back which is really just like empathy for people absolutely i think i can summarize the book with that word empathy yeah i think exactly. it's a lot with the other one as well exactly yeah um so actually just to get back on the reading thing how did you get people to start reading uh at fastcap Well, uh, the number one way you get anybody to do anything is to model it. Okay. So first you have to model it. So if you're reading profusely and you're talking about what you've learned in those books, it, it kind of sets a certain standard or expectation in order for them to keep up with me, if you will, right? Mm -hmm. So I have lots of friends who are a lot smarter than me and a lot more successful than me. And I don't think they let me into their world okay. if I wasn't developing myself. Otherwise, I would be a little boring to them, right? right. So right. I think when you set a certain standard of acumen and knowledge, The people that come into your world say, hey, if I want to keep up with Paul, I better get my act together. I better start reading. Right. Does that make any sense? That makes a lot of sense. Um, it's actually the way that you deal with people uh, I find very interesting. Because, for instance, one of the things that you said in the book is that you care more – or correct me if I'm wrong. I'm paraphrasing here. But you care more about kind of how a person is than just the skills they have. Mm -hmm. uh, do I say that correctly? Yeah, absolutely. We hire for character. We teach for skill. So everybody puts on their resume, I can do this. I can work at Microsoft. I can do the InDesign suite. I, I could do this. I, I could care less. I mean, that's nice. I want to know how you think. I want to know 
how you come to conclusions. I want to know what motivates you. I want to understand your work ethic. I want to understand what's driving you. Because if I understand those things, and those things are closely aligned to the values and philosophies that FastCap has, uh, we can teach all that other stuff. That stuff's easy to teach. Today's day and age, you could be you could be programming, a, you could be writing code uh, in, in, in a couple of weeks if you if you wanted to learn it. You had the right attitude. So if you had a coding company and someone comes in who doesn't know how to code and they have that just perfect character, would you be okay with hiring them, so to say? Oh, we, 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 that's exactly the model of the way FastCap works. Everybody comes to us basically a blank, a blank slate with mm -hmm. not a lot of particular skills in one thing or another. And we teach the skills to them because they have great attitudes. We have people that are operating and managing millions and millions of dollars with a business that don't have an MBA, don't have a degree in business, don't do all kinds of things. And they do it at a level far above what the people who have the degrees, the MBAs, the yeah. sheepskins, and all the other documents. And so, I mean, people, the typical thing when people come to FastCap is they go, where did you get these people? And I said, I didn't. We developed these people. Right. Yeah, that's something I love, like how much you focus on uh, on teaching. Um, I could imagine, however, that you sometimes have someone, maybe when you started out, um, that doesn't fit with the lean philosophies or is maybe doesn't have the right character. Like uh, when that happens, do you still try to have them go through the process or is it then very quickly like, hey, no, this is not going to work for us? Both. So the answer is, I answer this question a lot. First of all, it's very important that you don't hire the wrong person. You need to deal with problems way upstream at the small little, at the, at not downstream at the mouth of the river. It's too late. Then. So you got to make sure before you bring anybody onto your bus, Jim Collins, you got to make sure you get the right person, right? So if you, if you hire the wrong person, then you're dealing with it downstream here. It's a lot more inefficient, a lot more resources, a lot of waste, just massive amounts of waste. So get the right person. But let's assume you don't get the right person. You screw that yeah. process up. Then I simply bring people into my office. And I don't have an office, excuse me. I always use that word as just On a phrase. But yeah. uh, uh, we, we have a conference room. We'll bring them in privately. And I'll, and I'll say, you know, Bob, Mary, Sue, here's the deal. We have determined at FastCap that the only thing that matters is lean thinking. And we do that philosophically because our customers want it. Our customers want our products to improve. They want quality to improve. They want costs to go down. They don't want costs to keep going up. They want things when they want it. They don't want to hear all the excuses of why we can't do it right now. So in order for us to survive and, and service our customers, because philosophically, we believe we're not in business for ourselves. I'm not in business, Bob, Mary, George, to make money. You think I'm in business to make money. Yeah. You think you're here to get a paycheck. But see, that's the wrong thinking. That's not why we're here. We're here to serve our customers. And when we serve our customers at a high level, our customers exchange their time, money, and effort in cash. They give us that money. 
for the service we provide. So mm-hmm. the money is a byproduct. Our target is the great quality service. And then in exchange, we get the money. It's a different way of thinking, Mar- Martha, Bob, George. So yeah. we're here to serve our customer. We can best serve our customer through continuous improvement and lean thinking on a daily basis. So this is the philosophy of FastCap. Do you understand that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I get that. Okay. So if you're going to walk in that door at seven in the morning, you're going to get that. And you're going to do that. And I will teach you. I will train you. I will spend money. I will expend all kinds of resources, thousands and thousands of dollars to get you to understand that and develop that concept. But if you fight me, you make me yell at you, scream at you, cajole you, poke you, prod you, do all these other things. Guess what? I'm not going to do it. You're going to find another job. So you're going to make a decision right now. Do you want to stay at FastCap, adopt and believe this philosophy 100% and be the recipient of my benevolence to help teach, train you, develop you for the rest of your life to become a better human being? Or are you going to go? What's it going to be? I love that. I think a lot of people wouldn't have the the guts, so to say, to uh, to be that direct. But I think it's the only way to to bring along that culture. It's it's lean. It's lean. Do you yeah. understand? I mean, yeah. why are we going to waste all of our time, months and months, going around? Well, Martha doesn't get it. Yap doesn't get it. Paul doesn't get it. <laughs> well, this is just stupid. This is just stupid. It's like you you, you said twenty four hours. You you contacted me, and then today yeah. we're already doing it. You know why I did that? Because what? I don't want to put this on my list. I have lots of things coming at me all the time. So I have a choice. I either develop a process to do things efficiently. So when things come at me, when you, you had a need, right? Yeah. You're the customer. Yeah, yeah, sure. I'm doing, yeah. You had a need. So I developed a process so I could deliver to my customer what they want when they want it, right? Or I could be like everyone else. Well, let's set a date for May 23rd at 2 p.m. Yeah. And then I've got a thousand other things coming at me that are filling up and creating these mountains of work that are on my mind. Mm-hmm. I got nothing on my mind. Just what I'm That's doing right now with you. And when I finish that, I'll do the next thing that comes at me. Everything flows. That's amazing. Because I've developed processes to be efficient. I don't make excuses on why I can't get things done when people want it. But, okay, you're um, quite a public figure. Um, mm-hmm. Don't you get overloaded with requests, though? Oh, I mean, they come at me nonstop. But, of course, how do you know about me? You know about me from videos, right? That, yeah, so my sure, videos... Yeah. My videos are answering 98% of all the questions people have. That's why literally tens of thousands of companies around the world are doing two-second lean. They've never met me. They've never spoken with me because I found a way to duplicate myself and get the information out there so that it's accessible to everybody. And then when people like yourself come along, you want to do a podcast, keep the information fresh, maybe uncover some new truths, I'm available to do it. But if I didn't do the videos, you're right. You would be on a schedule right now. <laughs> exactly. Um, so actually, that leads me to one of the questions that is more about lean. Uh, I have okay. a couple of those where you know I've I've read 
a little bit about Lean. I read your book. I read uh, some of the Toyota books. I did the course at the University of Amsterdam, but that was more Six Sigma, I would say. And so um, one of the things that seems to be a constant discussion there is top down, bottom up. Um, you know, like should things come from management and be pushed down or should things come more from the workflow and then flow up? Uh, and I get very confused there because if you're, let's say you're a company and you don't have lean, uh, is it possible that kind of like the bottom layer of people, I, I don't like saying bottom layer, by the way, I think it's okay, people, I understand. you know what I mean? Yeah. That is it possible that they actually start the lean thing and it goes, goes up or, or is it better if it comes from the top? And I'm sure the answer is maybe somewhere in the middle. But no, I'll answer the question. To, it's, a, it's, it's a very yeah. easy question to answer. Highly unlikely that it will ever be sustainable or really have substantive or a substantive response from the bottom up. Very unlikely. Lean happens effectively when three things happen. When the person at the top of the organization understands and is fully engaged in the transformation of the organization, hmm. that's number one. Number two, when the leader at the top is fully engaged and is involved in the transformation of the company, that's number two. <laughs> number three, when the leader of the company is fully involved and engaged in the transformation of the organization, period. If the person at the top is not driving this, doesn't believe in it, doesn't make it their focus, it'll never happen. Period. It'll never happen. It's just the way, it's just the way it is. Just the way it is. You need, you know, I, I end my book, Two Second Lean. The very last thing I say in the book is lean is not about the elimination of waste. It's not about operational excellence. It is not about value stream mapping. It's not about this. It's not about that. It's only about one thing, leadership excellence. This is a leadership thing. Yeah. I'm really happy to hear that because I feel like that's something that is still confusing to some people. Yeah, uh, it's leadership. Uh, it's leadership, whatever but people... You know, it's 2% of the people in the world. And, you know, the 2% of the people that get it, they're just so successful, it's unbelievable. And everybody else is wondering how they do it. Well, they became, they became great leaders. They became people that set an example of what it's supposed to look like. Yeah. So then leadership, you know, aside from all the beliefs you need to have of, of, of lean manufacturing and carrying it out, what do you think are the most important qualities that a leader has what makes people follow someone well again there's a great saying that japanese children and i spent a lot of time in japan teaching learning the culture my last book ban of sloppiness was about japan that japanese children learn by watching their father's back so the number one characteristic of leadership is the example you set. People mm -hmm. learn by doing, not by you pointing your finger and saying, hey, go do this. When you have a leader that's setting the example, people will follow. Yeah. So that's number one. The, the second thing, if I was gonna say there was a second characteristic, and this is only for me personally, 
the leader, and I talk about this in my book as well, and this is, I, I don't know if I've ever heard anybody else ever say this before. Yeah. And that is, the leader must say they're wrong three times a day to the people they're leading. And they also must say, your idea was better than mine. I didn't know that. That's something new. I learned something new today. When you model that kind of attitude, then everybody else in the organization stops making it about, hey, I'm the smartest guy. Look at the thing I thought of. And all of a sudden, the whole lean idea, the whole idea of innovation and continuous improvement just explodes because you're not competing with people's egos. You're just concerned about getting the best result for the customer. And there are two customers. There's the internal customer, the people you work with, you and I working together, me helping you, you helping me, mm-hmm. and our external customers. And, and in that environment, it's just boom. It's very explosive. But the leader has to model that. So there again, a lot of the humility seems to uh, seems to come in because the, from the way you just said it, it sounds like that's also what takes out the politics. Oh, yeah. The politics is just going to kill everything. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I want to just uh, take a little uh, uh, side road, so to say, uh, mm-hmm. which is another lean thing I've been thinking about and I just had to ask you. So one thing you talk a lot about in the book is just one piece uh, processing. Do I say mm-hmm. that correctly? Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, and can you think of any situation where producing in bulk and having inventory would be better? Is, is there any? Oh, well, well, for sure. I mean, so here is, here's the way to understand this. You want to have, you want to lower the inventory to as low as is practicable. So I'll give you an example. You're cooking in the, in the kitchen and you want to put salt on your food. So you go to the store and you buy salt. Now, if you bought just what you needed just for that dish that you're making right now, you would probably get, what, 40 or 50 grains of salt and you'd put it on there. Yeah. <laughs> and then the next more, and then the next morning, you'd wake up, you're making your eggs and you want to put some salt on your egg. You wouldn't have any. So what would you have to do? You'd have to transport yourself down to the store, get the salt and come back. So... But at the same time, if you went and bought a five-pound bag of salt, which would last you for maybe three years, yeah. then you have to build a bigger cabinet and a bigger house and a bigger car to transport it and everything else. So you want to reduce things down to a very practical size that is as as minimalist as possible, right. but not uh, – but not so much that you, you you know you know you've got enough for five years. So I don't know if that was a good enough analogy, but you want. Gosh, how could I say? So you you <laughs> ask me. I want to ask me the question one more time. Okay, I'll, I'll maybe put it a little bit differently, uh, so you can expand there. So let's say we have a computer that we're building. Okay. Um, do we want to build that computer from start to end, kind of like piece per piece? Or oh, do yeah. we maybe want okay. Oh, do you want to build four computers at a time? For instance. Is that yeah. your question? That's yeah. also that's part of my question, yes. 
Well, the, the first you have to, again, philosophically have to understand the why behind what we're trying to do. Right. So the target of one piece flow is to deliver to the customer what the customer wants when they want it. So that's one target. The second thing is to do it defect free. So if I'm building four computers at a time, the opportunity to make a mistake is much higher. And if I build four computers and I make a mistake on one, I've made the mistake on all of them. Right. Yeah. So now I have the rework of four of them. If I build one at a time and I make a mistake, I have to go back and fix one computer. If I build four at a time, I have to go back and fix four computers. Yeah. So statistically, we've learned that one piece flow is actually more efficient. Maybe you have to reach a few more times to do things. Maybe you have to get, uh, maybe you have to do a little bit more transportation. But mm -hmm. when you factor in the defect issue, it's way more efficient. So in general terms, we know that one piece flow is more effective. It is not always the case. Sometimes building two at a time is more efficient than building one at a time. Those are things you need to measure and just determine what is best for you. So we say the Toyota production system is a flexible system. It is not rigid. Mm -hmm. This is the way it is, and you can only do it this way. There, there are principles in, that have been put in place that have proven themselves out to be true most of the time, and you want to operate in that realm and then allow for some flexibility when circumstances dictate. Yeah. Yes, did that make any sense or did that, I dig? That made a lot of sense. Uh, I want to maybe try to go a bit deeper. I don't know if we'll go deeper or if I'm just no going astray here. But um, So one of the things I'm thinking about now is lead time, right? Uh, my you know, initial logic would be to say, okay, if I have quite some inventory, then my lead time to my customer could be shorter because the moment they want it, I can put it in the car and drive it off and they'll have it. Right. Um, is that, would you say that's correct thinking? Sure, sure, it's correct thinking. You've got to have inventory. Mm -hmm. It's not that inventory is is a sin in and of itself. Okay. It's excess inventory is a sin. Inventory that is not commensurate with the demand from the customer. I'll give you a great example. When I before I learned lean, we would run our machine and make our cover caps, and I would make ten thousand. The demand for the customer was 1,000. So I had made 10 times more than the demand of the customer. But the reason why, then you got to go upstream. The reason why I made 10,000 out of 1,000 was because the machine was difficult to set up. So by the time I set the machine up, I said, oh, let's just run 10,000. They're going to buy it over the next month. Over yeah. the course of one month, they'll buy it. Mm -hmm. So let's just make 10,000. So we would run it all and put it up on the shelf. So we had to buy a shelf to put it on. Well, when the Japanese came in, they looked at that and said, well, why? They go upstream. Nande is the Japanese word for why. Nande, Nande, Nande. Why are you making so much? Because the machine's difficult to set up. So they went upstream and they said, let's work on the setup of the machine. So they took the setup of the machine from 45 minutes to five minutes. 
Now, all of a sudden, the customer says, I, your demand today, my customer said the demand today is 1,000 gap. I put the die in, brrr, run the machine, 1,000 caps, stop the machine, mm-hmm. give the customer what they want. The next day, the customer would say, I want 1,500 caps. Put the die in, brrr, 1,500. I was making what the demand of the customer was, and the only and because I didn't address the real core issue. So now I lim- then I eliminated all those shelves. And all the inventory and people counting them and dusting them and, and all that yep. stuff was gone because I dealt with the demand of the customer. So always working to try to get to the demand of the customer. Whatever that demand is, that's what the inventory level should be. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Did that make sense? That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, for sure. So if you look, okay, this is probably short-term thinking, but when you're trying to transition to that point where you have very long changeover times, mm-hmm. um just from a very short-term perspective, how do you deal with that? Do you just say, guys, even though we have a super long changeover time, we're only going to produce what's needed? Or do you say we're first going to improve the changeover time? Oh, yeah. Still yeah. run the big batches? Or This is a very good question. I love this, Yap. Excellent question. So the answer is, in my opinion, I don't know everything. I'm just giving you my opinion. You do not want to be too disruptive to your organization when you start out because everybody will just say, I can't deal with this. So you want to, so let's say your change out, let's say, let's take us for example, the change out time is 45 minutes. We didn't just say, okay, we're not making any product. We're just going to work on change out time and all the customers are going to be pissed off. And, you know, no, no, no. We just, Every day started working. That's what two second lean is about, making yeah. small improvements. And we took it from 45 minutes to 44 and a half minutes, and then to 44 minutes, and then to 43 minutes. And we just kept chiseling away at it a little bit at a time every day. And then we went to work. So I tell people this is exactly my prescription. I want you to go back to your facility and I want you to spend 15 minutes every day, three Sing. Sweeping, yeah. sorting, and standardized. Just cleaning things up, finding little problems, putting labels on things, organizing your work area. And then, this is the big thing, yeah. And then I want you to go back to working exactly the way you were working before. I don't want you to change a single thing. I don't want any yeah. disruption in your company. I only want you to commit to one small thing, just that 3 Sing every day and maybe meeting as a team for five or 10 minutes, talk about your problem. And then go back to work exactly the way you were doing it before. And be consistent with those first two things. And before long, the transformation will spread through your entire company. And you're not going to be able to spend 15 minutes 3S. And you're going to be able to spend a half hour. You're going to be able to spend a half hour in your morning meeting. Because you will have gained so much productivity. You will have so much time to sit back and just think about your problems and start <laughs> fixing them. That that's actually the next thing I was going to ask. Like uh, in talking about people, uh, to me it seems that you would have gotten to the point where you're so efficient that one person could run everything. Like when people get so efficient, and you know you're, you're very strong spoken about um, we keep the people, we don't want a turnover if possible at all. Um, if you get so efficient at some point, isn't everyone just sitting around all day drinking coffee? No, because you take a company like ours. This is a great example. I'll give you a fabulous example of exactly what you're saying. So our company, uh, we do tens of millions of dollars of business all over the world. Mm -hmm. We have approximately 50 employees. 
our sales keep growing like crazy, mm-hmm. but we keep getting de- the more and more, the sales go up, but we do it with the same number of people. So what happens is your efficiency creates more opportunity, more innovations, more products delivered to the market. Costs go down, quality goes up, pay goes up. Everybody wins. No, just the opposite. I mean, I have all this time to think about all the great new products that I'm going to do. So, awesome. There's no one sitting around twiddling their thumbs. We're busy. <laughs> We're just busy doing new, fun, innovative stuff. Delivering awesome. more value for our customer, which is exactly what our customers expect from us and what our customers want. So the purpose of being in business is to deliver value to the customer, to improve the quality of the customer's life. They see your product and they see your product can improve their life. That is our job, to deliver a product that can improve their life. So in a continuous improvement environment, we're not only uh, making things more efficiently, but now we have more time to use our brains to find even better ways and better innovations. I love it. Does that make sense? That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, for sure. Let me just... uh, Before we started this podcast, I I showed you my yard, right? Yes, you did. Yeah. Did it look like a lot of work to manage that that yard? Like like it costs a lot of work? No. Do you think it would take a lot of manpower to manage that yard at that level? It, it looks extremely clean and perfect. Yeah, 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 yeah. It looks extremely clean and perfect. No, I, w- I would 30. say it takes a lot of people. Yeah, a lot of people, right? Yeah, a lot of people, right? That that would take anybody else. That would take ten people to do that. That yard. right? That that's that's it's perfect it's better than any japanese garden in japan it is perfect yeah yeah i basically have one kid that does that all day long full time but he's a lean think he's a lean thinker one kid and his name's dimitri and he's so over the top it's unbelievable but i trained him he's a lean maniac if you watch any of my videos of my home you watch how Mm -hmm. we have everything organized our processes it's just like astounding people can't even believe what they're seeing well, so we have one person that does this magnificent, it's the best, it's the most beautiful house in the world. I, I, I say that, but I'm not, a, I'm not, I know it is. I've been in some of the most beautiful homes in the world. There's nobody's house that is as meticulously maintained in yards and gardens at my level. Lean uh, thinking, baby. I love that because um, what I see sometimes when it comes to lean is people, and I, I'm no expert at all, right? It's been a year since I've been studying it. Uh, mm-hmm. And one thing I see is that people misunderstand it. So they say, okay, we got to be lean now. We have this beautiful office space and it, it can be beautiful. And then they start putting squares on the table of where their mouse should be, which ruins the look of it. And it doesn't yeah, add yeah, yeah, any yeah. value yeah. whatsoever. You, you don't see any of that. You're, you're in my office right now. I don't have any of that. Yeah. 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 And, so uh, this is my home office and it's in my home office is, I mean, you can see it. it. It's it's stunning. It's beautiful. And uh, yeah, no, yeah, I don't have any squares on the corner. Although if you open my drawer, yeah, you know, if you open my drawer, drawer now. Yeah. we're, we're, we're oh, not wow. struggling. You know, wow. we're not struggling to do anything. Oh, that's right? crazy. I will so, not open the drawer behind me here because yeah. <laughs> it's not there yet. You, you follow uh, what I'm saying? I totally follow what you're saying. So yeah. it, it doesn't, lean doesn't have to take away aesthetics. It yeah. could be, you know, it's not, that's not what it's about. <laughs> it's misinterpreted. 
So that's actually what I love about uh, the whole journey so far. It, it makes your thinking so much more expensive. Because for instance, myself, I've always kind of had the belief I wouldn't want to own a big house because it seems like such a struggle to, you know, tell people to do the garden, to constantly look at it, uh, to have to think about all the things you have to maintain. But if you can get to the point where you make your whole life so streamlined as you did, then that that doesn't become a problem you can, anymore. Yeah, you can have the right. pie and eat it too, so to say. Right. You know, so that's a very, this, we don't normally get into this conversation when people interview me, but I don't mind talking about it. It's interesting. So I have, as you, you've seen a little bit of my home already. I've walked around mm-hmm. and showed you some. My, my house is like ridiculous. It's like a museum. Yeah. And, and I love that. And I'm affected by the artistry of it. I'm affected by, you know, I was looking at that. This, this, these, these things like this. This, this is just, this wow. is inspiring to me. The, yeah. the, this, this, this just makes me feel amazing. And I love beauty and artistry, and it's everywhere in my home and my yard, my garden, and everything. So I, I love and appreciate that. But if I was to take careful. Uh, evaluation of my life and everything I've done, if I had to do it all over again, I would do it differently. Really? Yes. So I see this is being, this is being honest. This is again, you know, saying, Hey, I'm not the smartest guy in the, in the room. If I did it all over again, I would have a tiny house. Really? My house all total is, you know, 3000, 3000 square feet. It's a big, it's a big home. That's huge. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a big home. If I did it all over again, I'd have a one bedroom house, one bedroom, one bath, and one beautiful kitchen. I would keep it very small, very very simple, and that's the way I would do it. And I would think I, I'd still have all the high quality, but I'd just make it much simpler, much more compact, because ultimately I'd have more time to think, to learn, and explore instead of manage something this big. Yeah. That's my honest opinion. Yeah, so uh, I actually like that you just uh, mentioned that because I have this obsession with small houses and, and, and campers, like I mentioned earlier. So well, I love uh, small houses and I love right. small campers. I love small, uh, uh, but I, I didn't I didn't develop my life that way because I wasn't smart enough and I wasn't young. I wasn't in my youth. I, I didn't I wasn't thinking that way. But here I'm 60 years old now. Your thinking is correct, in my opinion. I like small. I think small, compact, simple, clean, elegant is the only way to go. But I've got this monstrosity now, and it, it is what it is. And I manage it and take care of the resource. And you know, I talk about my book ban of sloppiness. My hope and yeah. dream is that this will become an institute for learning, where lean thinkers from around the world can come here and walk through the garden and kind of th- see what I was thinking and and kind of understand that and know that what I did was not perfect and that there are lots of places that could have been improved. But it is what it is. It's a resource. We want to manage it and learn from it mm-hmm. and not not hold it up as a model as being perfect, but just as a place where a lean thinker developed and yeah, uh, yeah. learned. I'm really inspired by the by the generosity again of, of all the things you're doing. It's uh, I mean I, I'm a young guy, so for me it's uh, it's good to have some talk to some people who do this. I love it. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I want to. I just wish at my. I wish at my. I wish at your. I wish when I was your age, I was thinking like you. I wish. Yeah, but I mean, thinking is not enough, right? You also need to be doing. And if if I just look Mm -hmm. at my personal life, I'm still not satisfied with the amount of giving I'm doing. Right in your book, you say you have givers and takers. I think Adam Grant also wrote a great book on that. Two years ago, I wrote on my New Year's resolution, I said I was going to do some sort of volunteering. I still haven't done anything because I want, mm-hmm. I would, I, I, I say to people that I want to give more and I try to give my time to people in listening to them. I think that's a very important one. Um, but, you know, I think this way, but I'm absolutely not doing all the things I should be. Yeah, well, I would, I would, I would tell you that I, I think you're beating yourself up too much. I wouldn't worry. Maybe volunteering's not your gig. Hmm. I mean, the fact that you're putting this information out there with the hope of developing and helping people, I think if you do an extraordinary job of that, that is an extension of giving. So I wouldn't beat yourself up on the volunteering thing. I just, every day, God puts whatever your belief system and God puts people in front of you that you could have the opportunity to influence. If you just slow down and say, what, how can I help this person? Hmm. It isn't about going down to the food bank or going down to the homeless shelter. Every day people are put in your life. You're put in my life. I didn't know you till a couple, an hour ago. Right. And you have, I have an opportunity to give now and help you. And you, you, those same opportunities will be put in front of you. Just take them as they come to you and, and deal with them and work yeah. with them. Thank you. Um, I have a couple more questions before we, uh, mm-hmm. before we finish off. Uh, one of them is about money. Uh, because mm-hmm. you start your book uh, almost stating that money is almost like the enemy of creativity, if I put that right. Mm-hmm. Suffocates creativity. Exactly. Um, how do you feel about, you know, for instance, for this podcast, I have several ways of producing it, right? Um, so for instance, the tool we're using to record this, I'm paying a little bit of money for it so that I don't have to worry about, uh, the audio quality being good or, you know, with Skype, it just comes in one way and it doesn't sound as good. Um, how do you feel about spending money for comfort in general? Well, I think, remember, you're a customer and you're looking for a particular result. And if what you want is to sleep on a hard bed, then you should buy a hard bed. If you want to sleep on a soft bed and that adds value for you, that improves your sleeping quality, whatever it is that's your value. There isn't, my value is not your value. Your value is not my value. If that's, if if it's important for you to have good quality podcast and for, for that to be uh, robust in all those characteristics, you should Mm -hmm. do that. But then always think, how can I continually improve that? How can I drive quality up and drive costs down? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Awesome. Does that make sense? That makes a lot of sense. Uh, you, do you work a lot? Do you ever have time for, do you feel like you have enough time for yourself, so to say? Because it seems like you do 
a tremendous amount of things. Well, do you know where I just was for the last three weeks? I think you were in Japan. Uh, skiing every day for three weeks. Really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> were you alone skiing? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Wow. Is your wife okay with you going skiing alone? Yeah, we've been married 37 years. She, she lets me do what I want to do. But, you know, she can always go with me. And we go on lots of big trips together. We're going to the North Pole this year. We went to Antarctica last year. We're always going somewhere. Yeah, we, we do lots of fun stuff together. But I'm an avid athlete, and I like to I like to ski. I like to mountain climb. I do lots of stuff. And, uh, yeah, you know, I don't I, – do I have lots of time? I have more time than most people – most people dream of having my life. Wow. I work very hard. I work very hard, but I, I, I play really hard. I don't play. I play harder than anybody I know. And nobody, nobody does the stuff I do. Yeah. I, I, I love that. So how do you feel about retirement? Is that ever going to happen for you then? Or are you going to just keep this up? Well, you mean work as in fast cap? When you say retirement, are you saying that's a good question? No, I'm never going to stop. Yeah, Yeah, I'm never going to stop skiing like a maniac. I'm never going to stop creating. I'm never going to stop reading. I'm never going to stop writing books. I'll I'll do that till the last my last breath. Will I always be running and managing Vascap? Probably not. Hopefully, my son and daughter are going to take over, Mm -hmm. and then I'll you know provide guidance for them. But no, I, I, the world is a big place. There's lots of people to meet like yourself, and I want to meet all of them. I want to experience all of it. I've been to 105 countries. I, my target is about 150 right now. That's amazing. So I have a lot of, lot, I want to climb the Matterhorn. I haven't done that yet. I want to ski in Zermont. Uh, you know, there's a lot of things I want to do that I haven't done. And there's a lot of things I have done. But so I have a big bucket list and it, it's, uh, I check them off like a crazy man. And no, I have a lot of stuff I want to do and I'm never going to stop doing it. Do you actually keep a bucket list? Do you actually have a list of it? Oh yeah, huge, huge. But my, yeah, no, I have a huge <laughs> list of things I want to do. Huge, but yeah, huge. But I, but I'm not one of those guys that has the bucket list and, and doesn't have anything checked off. I have thousands of things checked off. You know? Yeah, I mean, I, I there's so many things I've done. I mean, you've read you've read some of my bio. You know, I climbed Kilimanjaro. A week later, I went to Everest Space Camp. You know, I've done two Ironman. I mean, I've scuba dived all over the world. I've been in every ocean you could imagine. Yeah. You know, climbed four, so many fourteen thousand foot mountains. I can't keep track of it. And you know, just yeah, skied all over the world. I mean, I just skied in ten resorts in, in Japan in the last three weeks. I've skied. In, <laughs> I, I've I skied in. Five, six, seven resorts in the United States this year already, not counting the ones I just skied in. On top of everything else that I'm doing. <laughs> yeah. It's, it seems in a lot of way like you have kind of some core principles and kind of like different tenants of that that keep everything running. It's like a, it's like a big wheel. Like you have the – seems like you're eating healthy, you're doing sports, you challenge yourself mentally – you work hard, you take time for yourself also to do fun things. And it seems like you have that. But it's real simple. There are are some core principles. There's a group Mm -hmm. of them. But the main core principle is continuous improvement. Mm 
the main core principle is how do I do life better today than I did it yesterday? That's it. Hmm. Okay. Um, I'm going to ask you a closing question. No, can I, yeah. I want to give you, I want to oh, give yeah, you yeah. one Go example ahead. of that. Okay. Just that I yeah. think will really help the listeners. Okay. So I'm a good skier. On a scale yeah. of one to 10, if you were to go to any ski resort in the world, I would be probably a seven, a seven or an eight, one of the better skiers on the mountain for sure. Right. Yeah. Okay. I could ski anything, I can do anything. When I went to Japan, I was a one. Really? I was the worst skier on the mountain. The Japanese approach skiing very technically. And they're they're flawless. And when I go to a ski resort in the United States, I'm lucky to find another good skier on the mountain. I look around when I'm right up the lift. There are very few people that ski right mm -hmm. correctly. In Japan, it's almost impossible to find a bad skier. They all ski incredible. Because they spend the time to learn how to do it right. So the reason I'm telling you that story is because I went to Japan and I just said, I've got to improve. So I took lessons mm -hmm. and I improved dramatically, dramatic improvement in my skiing. And I'm all, I've been skiing my whole life. Right. And so the point is continuous improvement was the driving principle. It wasn't going to Japan and skiing in great powder and having a fun time and being in the outdoors and sucking mm -hmm. up clean air and all those. That wasn't it. I went there to improve. Yeah. And the result is I enjoy skiing so much more now. So the overriding principle was continuous improvement. What that produced is more joy and more satisfaction when I'm skiing. Mm. So the overriding principle of everyone should be, look around you, what can you improve? Mm. I'm in a lift. Look around you, what can you improve? You, you suck, they're good. Go take mm -hmm. some lessons. Yeah. So actually, talking about the skiing, what did what did you you say you were one, and and here compared and to the Japanese, were, compared to the Japanese, yeah, for sure. Was that because they were skiing parallel better, or they were doing off piece better? Or? Oh, I can I can ski with my feet glued together like like there's one ski. They're, they're not a function, but they're technically doing it right. So what they're doing is they have their butt. Mm -hmm. very carefully right over the center of their of their boot right yeah right so they, they they have this stance if you ever watch a japanese skier they're always in this forward leaning stance now i know how to drive forward i've been driving forward my whole life right yeah, yeah. but not compared to the japanese the way the japanese do it it's entirely different and then the rhythm of their hands and the placement and the precision of their hands when mm -hmm. their hands come across and they're And the, their their hand, this hand is exactly in the right spot every turn, Very and precise, they have yeah. this motion and this rhythm, and it's just like it's 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 it's, it's magic to watch them Love ski. It. Love it. And I'm and I was sloppy in the way I did it. I did it, but it wasn't the rhythmic. And so when I took the lesson, I said, "What well, to the teacher, Seki-san? What's the one thing I need to know? What's the most important thing?" He said, "Rhythm. Mm -hmm. You've got to have a perfect rhythm." And so I started understanding how important this rhythm was and not just kind of like going out there and doing my own thing. Uh, it was transformative. The whole thing was transformative. Love it. Yeah. 
I'm actually planning yeah. on taking some uh, powder lessons next year because right. I feel so like I'm a little I'll give you yeah. one example. Are you a skier? Are you a skier? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I ski and snowboard, both okay. of them. Yeah. Okay, so here. So here's a typical Japanese skier. Mm-hmm. A typical European skier or American skier, when they're turning, when they're making a turn, mm-hmm. their body is maybe about right here, right? Mm-hmm. A Japanese is laying completely almost all the way over. Their hand and their elbow is touching the snow, wow, and the yeah. car, they go, they go, they go so far they go all the over. way. Yeah, it's like what the hell? How are they doing <laughs> that? They're literally on the edge of their mm. ski. The, the ski is completely bent and completely carving and completely turning. Yeah, and they're seeing like it my life. Yeah. I was, it's crazy. <laughs> I was actually practicing this last uh, last winter, <laughs> and yeah. I was like to my brother, I said, "Take take a picture of me when I go that sideways because yeah, I yeah, want to yeah, see yeah, what yeah, it looks yeah. like." And yeah. exactly the moment he wanted to take a picture, I went sideways and I went so far that my my boot hit hit the ground, and I just exactly. lost my skis and I went down for <laughs> for half the right. slope. It was beautiful, but yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. It's crazy that technically how they do it. When when they were teaching me, they said you have to be really patient, Paul. Really patient. Let it let, let the edge stay patient, 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 and then go. Boom. Yeah. And I was like, oh my gosh, I never thought about skiing like this. I never thought that it was so technical. And there were all these little nuances at every part of the turn, there's something else happening. Yeah. I just thought, mm-hmm, you just turn. No, yeah. the Japanese are like, This is happening right at this moment, and then right at this moment, this is happening, then this moment, and then Mm. this moment, and you're just going, oh my gosh. I I almost feel like people tend to do learning the wrong way around. Like, I feel like people start with lessons and then stop, Mm -hmm. whereas I think you can do the first lessons on YouTube. You can get the basics. That's not so hard, but then to fine-tune, that seems to be the hardest part, if you ask me, when it gets to... Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, in retrospect, now that I wish I would have done it, I would. I wish I just, you know, here's a classic example. So I'm mm-hmm. in the lift line, and I say to the the guy in front of me, I say, "So, how long is this lesson that you're taking?" And I expected him. What do you think he was going to say? Half a day, maybe a full day, right? Yeah, that would have been the normal answer. A week. The the one lesson. The one lesson is a week long. Every day, all day long, one week long. Just one exercise, you mean? No, well, he's he was with a group. There were five mm-hmm. students. And I asked him, how long is the lesson? And I thought, I'm taking a half-day lesson. Or a day no, lesson. A week. That's what I do. No, it's a week lesson. Yeah. And then I asked him, how long have you been taking lessons? One year. Wow. That's awesome. Do you so, understand what the difference is? I, I see the difference. Yeah. Yeah. It's just they're they're looking at every detail. They are just so they they're so precise. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. So and they ski incredible. I, I when I was there, when I was there one time, mm-hmm. I met this gal who was like 65 years old, and she's skiing up in the lift with me. And I said, Can I follow you down? She said, sure. And she's 65 years old. I mean, how good is she going to ski? She kicked my ass. <laughs> I could not keep up with her. Japanese. And it, effortless. Huh. Effortless. Not, not, I was exhausted by the time I tried to stay up with her. She wasn't even breathing hard. Because huh. when you do it right, it's easy. 
I feel like that's the thing of everything. If you know enough and you're good enough at anything, it feels effortless. I, I remember the right, first time right. um, I took my dad for a motorbike class, he came off and he could barely move his hands because he'd been holding the handlebar mm -hmm. so hard, mm -hmm. you know, whereas mm -hmm. if you're a rider, it feels like you don't, you know, you have no tension anywhere when you're riding. It's just relaxing, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm a rider too. I don't know if you know that. I've ridden in tw 20 countries, 15 countries just last year on a motorcycle. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love it. Just last so, year? Yeah, just last year, Lithuania, Latvia, wow. uh, uh, Estonia, uh, Poland, Sweden, Norway, Denmark, uh, Croatia, uh, Spain, Japan. Wow. I can just go on and on and on. Yeah, I ride like crazy. I did the whole Pyrenees on a BMW 7, uh, excuse me, a BMW 1200. Was it a 1250? Yeah. What? The GS? GS, yeah. Yeah, yeah the that, GS. That bike is crazy. Yeah. I'm not quite so, at the but here yeah. but but you just yeah you just said the most critical thing of the whole interview you just mm -hmm. said it it's so much less effort mm -hmm. this is the essence of lean it is reducing effort so everyone every one of us gets up every day and we expend effort energy to get things done mm -hmm. lean thinking takes the amount of effort and energy you have to put in everything and reduces it dramatically so you have more effort you have more energy to do other things it expands your world hmm. instead of reduces your world yeah. so you're you know your profile is almost too impressive and it seems like you've done everything and know almost everything but if you look back at say your last year what are your biggest learnings or yeah yeah what well, are the big the biggest about? learning what the biggest learning for sure was my acute understanding of how sloppy i am as an individual yeah. how casual i am about life where the breath that i breathe is a gift and it's important that the seconds that you're given in life that you're a great steward of those, that you don't treat those casually like another one's gonna come around and I don't have to worry about that. Hmm. No, another one might not come around. Another interview might not come around. So the interview that I'm doing right now with you mm -hmm. should be extraordinary. And I should put all my effort into it and I should yeah. not be casual about it. And I should not say, oh, well, you know, another guy from the Netherlands wants to interview me. <laughs> no, is no, it no. always guys from no. the Netherlands? No. <laughs> no, no, no. The, yeah. You get the point. You I know what I'm point. saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, 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 it's all important, and you need to mm. be. You need to. You, there's a beautiful saying in in Japanese called "ganbarimas." Ganbarimas. It means I will do my best. Yeah. And this really encapsulates what my greatest learning is. This year and last year is mas. When you do something, I will do my best. I will not mm. I will not be sloppy. I will not be casual. I will be serious. I'm here to learn. I'm here to do my best. I love that. So um I think you know it's been a little over an hour, so I think we're gonna get to the end. Um what would you like people to take away from this? Like let's say you'd have to but some sentence on a billboard, what would you want people to get away, uh, get walk away with from this conversation? 
Lean is fun. Awesome. You will have more joy in your life if you do this correctly. It should put a smile on your face from start to finish. When I open my drawer, I'm happy. When I get on a ski run and I ski down and know that I've improved and I've learned something, I'm just like, yeah. Hmm. Lean and continuous improvement should put a smile on your face. It's fun. Hmm. Okay, so if people want to find you on the world of the internets, where should where should they look? What do you... Uh... Paul, paulacres.net is the best place. All my resources, everything's there. It's all free. Get my new app, Two Second Lean Play. It's all free. All my books, resources, everything's there. Start listening. Send me a message on WhatsApp or Voxer if you have any questions, and I'll do my best to reply to them very quickly. Awesome. Thank you so much, Paul, uh, for your my time. My pleasure, yeah. It's been an honor. So. Uh, yeah, well, it's been an honor for me, too. You did a great job, and uh, it's a lot of fun. Cheers. All right. Thank you all so much for listening to the second episode of Monocle Moments. Uh, if you enjoyed this, feel free to share it with any of the people that you would like to share it with. And all the things that we mentioned to put in the show notes, you can find back on jamesmonocle.com. Uh, just type in Paul Akers and you should be able to find it very easily. Thanks so much for listening and see you guys next time.